Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Strange Matters podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I am Sean, and I will be the host for this episode. In this episode, we will be discussing the mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of a Canadian man named Blair Adams. Blair was a man who was reportedly living a pretty normal life before his behavior suddenly and drastically changed. In a time span of just a number of days, Blair would completely abandon his old life, took everything of value on him that he could carry, made numerous attempts to leave the country, all before being found mysteriously dead in a parking lot in Knoxville, Tennessee. What exactly caused his sudden paranoia? Who was he running from, and the ultimate reason for his bizarre death is still largely unknown to this day. In this episode, I will be talking about the events leading up to Blair's death, and some of the possible theories behind both his behavior changes and the leading explanations for his death. Before we start, I'd like to remind listeners that Strange Matters is made possible by our generous supporters over at Patreon. On Patreon, listeners can pledge a small monthly donation to help the podcast grow and improve, and in return gain access to monthly exclusive bonus episodes. Anyone interested can check out our page at patreon.com slash strangematters. And for this episode, we'd like to thank our newest patrons, Monica, Amanda, Sarah, Eduardo, Ellie, Christy, Jaren, and Tess, and also to our third preferred patron of the show, Sarah. We are currently working towards achieving our next goal so that we can bring merchandise to all you listeners, so big thanks to anyone and everyone who has supported Strange Matters. This strange case begins in British Columbia, Canada, in 1996. Robert Dennis Blair Adams, who mostly just went by Blair, was a foreman working at a construction company in Surrey. By most accounts, Blair was a well-mannered and likable guy. He was enjoying his time at the construction company and was said to have been a good employee. Blair wasn't perfect, of course, as he did have some troubles in the past. He did have a criminal record that included convictions on drug and assault charges. A former alcoholic, Blair had been working on bettering himself, as he had been sober for several years, frequently attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. However, in the summer of 1996, something happened and Blair began to act a bit different. He suddenly stopped going to his AA meetings without an explanation, he began to exhibit wild mood swings and showed signs of paranoia that troubled those close to him. Blair's mother said of his sudden transformation, Something was obviously very much the matter. He hadn't been sleeping well. Something was wrong. I asked him numerous times what was wrong, and he said, I don't think I should tell you about it. And to this day, I don't know what it is. While his friends and family tried to find out what was going on, Blair's strange downward spiral continued. On Friday, June 5th, 1996, Blair went to his bank and withdrew his entire life savings, as well as taking all the contents of his safe deposit box. He left the bank with $6,000 in cash and several thousand dollars worth of jewelry and gold. That weekend, Blair packed up his money and valuables and made a beeline for the Canadian-American border. There, he tried to board a ferry that would go from Victoria to Seattle. His plans fell through once he got to the border, however. The guards, after checking out the contents of his carry-on bags, turned him away and didn't allow him access to the U.S. This is to be pretty much expected, as it's probably Border Patrol 101 not to allow frantically acting people across the country with literal bags full of cash and jewelry, so Blair had no option but to return home. 
Rather than coming to his senses, Blair instead doubled down on his unusual behavior. The day after being turned back at the border, Blair showed up at his construction company and told his boss that he quit as of that day. He gave no warning or reason, not even bothering to stay around long enough for them to get him his last paycheck. His boss heard him mention he didn't know if he could carry on here. As he left, his concerned co-workers suggested that he go see a doctor or talk to a specialist, which he refused. Perhaps misinterpreting their reasons or due to his increasing paranoia and mental state, Blair told his mother that these people were spreading rumors about him. When his close friends tried to get information about why he was acting so bizarrely the past couple days, Blair only told them that he thought someone was going to kill him. After quitting his job, Blair made another attempt of leaving the country. He drove to the airport and spent $1,600 on a round-trip ticket to Frankfurt, Germany. Though his flight was only the following day, once again his paranoia set in and Blair decided he couldn't wait that long. He drove from the airport to one of his close friend's house, acting erratic and scared, and again saying someone was going to kill him if he stayed much longer. He tried to convince his friend to help get him over the border to the United States, but his friend said that he couldn't go along with these plans. The next morning, instead of getting on his flight as planned, Blair instead drove back to the airport and returned his ticket. He then went to the car rental business nearby and rented a new car, loaded his stuff into it, and made another trip to the border. This time, whether it was because of more lax security or maybe Blair just conducted himself in a more normal fashion, he was allowed to pass and drove himself into the United States. Driving south, Blair ended up in Seattle, Washington. Rather than celebrating his escape from Canada and whatever evils terrified him there, Blair instantly made his next move. Driving straight to the airport, he bought a one-way ticket to Washington, D.C. This part of the story was odd as it seemed Blair had no intention of returning, even willing to pay extra money for a one-way trip. One of the investigators of the case later remarked about this purchase. He paid about $770 for a one-way ticket, when he could have purchased a round-trip ticket for approximately $350. So it would have been half the price for a round-trip ticket as he had paid for a one-way ticket. It just seemed very unusual. Blair would arrive in D.C. early the next morning, where, once again, he continued his seemingly random flight from whatever he feared. Instead of holding up for the day, Blair rented another car and set out for Knoxville, Tennessee. It would be here in Tennessee that Blair would meet his ultimate fate. But why exactly he chose to run all the way from British Columbia to Knoxville is a mystery to everyone involved in the case. Detective Perry Moyers has been baffled by Blair's cross-country run for years now. Perry has said, I mean, why go to D.C. to turn around and come back to Knoxville? He had no reason to be in East Tennessee. He had no reason to be in Knoxville. He knew no one in East Tennessee or the eastern United States. In the early evening of that day, at around 5.30, Blair pulled his rental car into a small gas station in Knoxville. And one of the oddest parts in an already overly odd case, Blair filled up the car with gas and then entered the gas station. Acting erratic and frightened, Blair told the gas station attendant that his car wouldn't start. It was eventually discovered that the key Blair had was not the actual key that went to this particular car that he was just driving. To make matters worse, the local shop of the car rental business Blair had used was closed for the day, so he would not be able to get the right key until the next morning. 
Stuck in the area and finally without the ability to keep running, Blair managed to hitch a ride to the nearby hotel where he could stay for the night. Of course, this experience did not go normal either, as Blair would walk in and out of the hotel lobby several times before finally asking for a room, as if he was debating on whether he should stay or just keep going somehow. The hotel actually has security footage of this moment in the story, showing that over the course of a little under an hour, he walked in and out of the building five times before finally approaching the front desk. The employee at the hotel who talked to Blair has remembered the encounter vividly. They said about the man, The best way to describe him would be paranoid. He was just very nervous, agitated, expecting someone to come in on him even though there wasn't anyone there. I don't know who he was looking for, but he was waiting for somebody to walk in on him. At 7.37pm, the security footage shows Blair pocketing the key to his room and walking out of the hotel. The man would never actually go up to his room that he just rented, instead leaving the premises and never returning. This would be the last time that Blair Adams would ever be seen alive. Twelve hours later, in the early morning of the next day, several workers passing by discovered an unusual scene in a parking lot by a construction site, which was less than a mile away from the hotel. When the police arrived on scene, they found the body of Blair Adams. Blair was found in a state of half-undress, as his pants had been what appeared to be forcibly removed. Lieutenant Jones, one of the officers at the scene, described it later. His pants were removed in a way not like someone who would take off their own pants, but in a way that someone else would remove your pants for you. His socks were turned inside out, his shoes were off, and his shirt was ripped open. When Blair's body was found, one of his shoes was under his head, almost like he was using it as a pillow as he lay dying. Scattered around Blair's corpse was $4,000 worth of cash, a mix of American, Canadian, and German currency. In a small fanny pack next to his body was his collection of gold and jewelry that he had taken from his safe deposit box back in Canada. The autopsy report would later show that Blair had suffered a good number of cuts and abrasions, believed to be those in self-defense, as if the man was trying to ward off an attack. The cause of death was a blunt trauma strike to his abdomen, a blow so powerful that it ruptured his stomach. This attack is mostly believed to be from a powerful punch, or a kick, or a strike from a blunt objects, or perhaps even a car's bumper. One thing that is clear is that the attack was not quick or clean. Signs show that it was a frantic and drawn-out event. Beyond the fatal blow that ruptured his stomach, the autopsy report showed that his forehead had been sliced open by a strike, most likely from an object like a club or crowbar. It is believed that Blair and his attacker fought and grappled hand-to-hand for some time, as Blair's arms and hands were bloody and cut up from self-defense wounds, and several tufts of his own hair had been yanked out during the struggle by his attacker. The investigators did find a single long strand of someone else's hair in one of Blair's hands, the only significant piece of physical evidence found at the scene. Also, in the autopsy report, it was found that certain injuries pointed that Blair had been sexually assaulted at some time. However, there was no DNA found at all, and it wasn't even clear exactly when the sexual assault happened. It's possible that it didn't even occur the night of his murder. It's interesting to note that the toxicology report showed no signs of drug or alcohol present in his system at the time of his death. It would seem that though Blair had quit going to his AA meetings, he at least hadn't had any drinks in the time leading up to his murder. 
This is also important, as I'm sure some of you listeners by now might be thinking that drugs probably played a part in contributing or causing Blair's sudden change in behavior or erratic decisions, but the testing shows at least that they couldn't find anything in terms of substance abuse that would be the culprit. Soon after his death, the police were able to backtrack Blair's unusual and frantic trip from Canada to this parking lot in Knoxville, Tennessee. It would seem that the further into the story the detectives got, the more confusing and mysterious it all seemed. As to his death and what led up to it, Detective Perry was also left baffled. We cannot come up with a motive for this man to be dead. We can't come up with a reason for him to be here. We can't come up with a reason for him to want to leave Canada. No one knew he was going to take this trip. The local sheriff, Jimmy Jones, said about this bizarre series of events, Every aspect of this case is mysterious. There's no logical explanation for anything he did. We can't say for a fact that this is why he did that, because there is no explanation. Sheriff Jones also said, It was the most interesting and strangest case in my entire 38-year career. So now that I've discussed the backstory that led to Blair Adams' unexplained death, I want to get into some of the theories behind both what caused all this to start, as well as to what, or who, caused his death. Perhaps the biggest mystery of this case is what caused Blair Adams to suddenly completely change in nature, what caused him to want to drop everything in his life and run away, and what was that thing that he was so afraid of. To this day, neither his family or friends can come up with a good answer as to what caused his quick collapse. Again, this entire chain of events happened within a six-day time span, which makes for a pretty incredible and drastic change in character in such a short time period. It would almost seem like one day Blair was normal and happy, and then the next something just set him off. His mother could not explain during one of his visits before he left the country why he broke down crying saying he quit his job, as she was remembering just the week before that he was going on about how much he enjoyed it. His friends were perplexed at his sudden anxiety and how he claimed to be afraid to stay in his own apartment. And of course, the most cryptic statement of all during his breakdown was when he told his friends he believed someone wanted him dead. One of the parts of this case that confuses me the most when researching was Blair's actions at the Knoxville gas station. As a reminder, on the day before his death, Blair arrived at the station to get gas. However, he then made a fuss as he couldn't get the car to start. More information on this part was found when the police interviewed an interstate repair services driver who was at the scene. Gerald Sapp was called to the station by the clerk who Blair had first told about his bizarre situation. When he arrived, Blair told Gerald that his key would not work to turn the car on. Gerald almost instantly saw the problem and told Blair that he was driving a Toyota Camry while the key held in his hands belonged to a Nissan from another rental company. Gerald later described what happened next. I asked him to look into his pockets. I said, if you drove this thing up here, you gotta have another key in your pockets. And he wouldn't look. So I thought he was nuts. He was bound to determine that he had the key he needed for that car. The guy was not all there. He didn't appear to be messed up. He didn't appear to be on drugs. But his mind wasn't functioning correctly for some reason. And as it would turn out, Blair must have had the real keys on his person somewhere as the correct set of keys would be found laying on the ground in the parking lot near his corpse the next day. Why he refused to look for the right keys, and why or how he was holding keys to a different car, has confused all who have tried to make sense of this scene. 
Though this case has remained unsolved for many years now, there have been a few recent developments that make things even more interesting. Whether they actually help us understand the case more, or just confuse people further, is up to debate though. It turns out that the suspected reason Blair at one point attempted to flee to Germany was because he actually was dating someone there. For his construction company, Blair had traveled to Frankfurt to work on an assisted living facility. While staying there, he met a woman at a party, and the two quickly hit it off. When she was tracked down by detectives, she described Blair as the perfect gentleman. When Blair began his sudden drop into paranoia, he contacted his German girlfriend and told her that he feared violence from several people that he had worked with while over there that had just returned to Canada. As I mentioned before, part of Blair's plans involved getting a ticket to Germany, Frankfurt to be exact. It would appear that he was planning on flying over to spend some time with his woman. However, he almost immediately asked for a refund for the ticket, as he explained that the person he was going to meet had gotten ill. When his German lady was contacted by the police, she said that she had no idea of his plans and wasn't expecting a visit from him anytime soon. So at this point, it remains unclear if Blair was just planning on dropping in on his girlfriend there or if he had other motives. Perhaps he just wanted a place far away from whatever was scaring him and he knew the Frankfurt area well, or perhaps he was planning on trying to meet someone else other than her. Just as with most every other aspect of this mystery, we just don't know. It does have to be noted, though, that several other people interviewed in Frankfurt described Blair completely different than his girlfriend did. Rather than a gentleman, according to them, Blair had a mean side to him. One man who worked with him on the assisted living facility said he was abrasive and confrontational, to the point where several times he got into physical fights over disputes. Other new details have come from Blair's family. In a recent phone interview, Sandra, Blair's mother, gave a few tidbits of information that had not been public information before. Sandra said that her son had been kind and ambitious once he had gotten his life together, and that she didn't see any signs of mental illness in the month leading up to his run and eventual death. She described how at one point she knew her son had gotten in a romantic relationship with a former male roommate of his. According to Sandra, they acted a little strangely and giggled a lot, and it was kind of odd, but then he went back to a heterosexual relationship after that. This information, if true, could possibly explain the signs of recent sexual trauma that was discovered during the autopsy. However, while researching this case, I could not find any other acquaintance or friend of Blair's who also mentioned his sexual past. It could be that it was something Blair had hid from everyone but his mother, or perhaps she just interpreted the relationship he had with his male roommate. It's hard to know for sure at this point. Sandra also revealed that her son was traveling to the South to supposedly go to the Summer Olympic Games, which were happening in Atlanta that summer. The Olympics would actually start eight days after Blair would end up dying. This piece of info, which anyone would assume is pretty vital, had never been told to the police before this recent interview. When asked further questions about how she knew about her son's erratic plans when no one else did, how and why he ended up in Knoxville, or why she had never told any of the investigators all of this in the many years they had been working the case, she did not answer. Without giving any further details, she just insisted that Blair was traveling for the Olympics. That was the point of the whole trip, she would say, right before ending the phone call. 
A follow-up phone call to try and make more sense of this recent news was thwarted by her husband, who angrily insisted that no more calls be made to their house. He said on the phone, any chance of solving the case was remote as hell, and we're not going to open that can of worms again. Since Blair's death, numerous investigators and reporters have looked into his case, trying to come up with any explanation or theory as to why he was killed. As to the motivation behind his death, that is also a big mystery. Though there were no witnesses to the attack itself, or anyone who saw Blair once he left the hotel, there was one report nearby that could connect to this case in some way. A security guard at a nearby business to where Blair's body was found reported that he heard an abrupt scream at 3.30 a.m. outside. The guard believed that the short scream had come from a woman. Whether this is somehow tied into Blair's murder, or just a strange coincidence, though, is unknown. The authorities and those close to Blair believe that he knew no one in Tennessee, or even in that half of the United States. There wasn't any apparent reason for anyone to have a personal vendetta or motive behind wanting Blair dead in that area. In fact, after checking his phone records, Blair had never even made a call to the United States. Robbery or theft also didn't seem to be a motive either. As I mentioned earlier, several thousand dollars in cash was just left scattered around his body, and his bag of gold coins and jewelry was also left right by his body. His set of rental car keys and the car to his hotel room was also found next to him. It would seem that if someone was trying to rob Blair, it wouldn't make sense why the culprit would just leave behind all that money and valuables. One theory that has been brought up by a number of people is that whoever Blair was afraid of back in Canada ended up being the actual person who killed him. The reasons behind this are varied. Some people think that it could be someone that Blair had wronged during his time of work, like perhaps one of those angry former colleagues he had worked with in Germany. Others think that Blair got mixed up with the mob or mafia during his time working construction, or perhaps just owed someone a lot of money. Then either this person hunted Blair down or hired a hitman to do it for them, and then they somehow managed to follow Blair from Surrey to Seattle to Washington, D.C., and then finally to a hotel in Knoxville, Tennessee, and then this is where they murdered him. So while this may be one of the more interesting theories, and it kind of sounds like it would make for a pretty good plot in a thriller novel, there really is no evidence or basis in reality for this theory to be the right one. And while I'm no expert in mafia hitmen or professional assassins, I would just naturally assume that anyone paid by a high-level crime boss would be instructed to do their job discreetly and quickly. A drawn-out struggle in a parking lot with either bare hands or perhaps a blunt object doesn't seem like the M.O. of someone who did killing for a living. It's really just hard to know if there was any truth behind Blair's claims that someone was actually trying to kill him, or if it was all just in his head. It seems clear that just based on his actions, that Blair might have been suffering from some type of mental illness or breakdown, and that his increasing paranoia was forcing him to carry out random and perhaps dangerous acts. One of the leading and most probable theories of Blair Adams' death comes from the authorities who looked into his case, who mostly believe that his death may have been caused by a sex act that somehow turned violent. Investigators think that, due in big part to Blair's state of undress when his body was found, that his death could have been sexual in nature. Sheriff Jones has commented on how there was a truck stop nearby that was located close to the hotel 
that Blair had checked into, and it was a truck stop that the local police were well aware of served as an area of prostitution. Jones thinks that Blair may have tried to pick up somebody at that truck stop. David Davenport, who is a former Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent, speculated that Blair may have tried to pick up a male prostitute, but for some reason or another, the pair got into a fight. Or he could have picked up a female prostitute, and her pimp stepped in to attack Blair for some reason. Davenport continued his theory, stating that he thinks the attack happened in a vehicle, and that after an intense struggle and fight inside, Blair was hit on the head with some type of object, and then tossed outside. Then, when trying to stand or get his bearings, the vehicle started and hit him, the bumper slamming into his stomach, which caused the fatal blow. Sheriff Jones has stated that he believed the fight happened outside, and that the mortal wound was caused by a hard kick to Blair's torso. Now, while this theory does make sense in some ways, it would certainly explain why Blair was pretty much naked from the waist down, it still doesn't fill in everything. It seems hard to come up with one theory or reason that would explain everything about his death, from the multiple sustained injuries from a frantic fight, to why his shoes, socks, and pants were pulled down, or why $4,000 in cash was just left scattered about his body. If I had to guess at any explanation, I would think that Blair did suffer from some type of mental illness that he had perhaps previously been able to hide for the most part from his friends and family. Perhaps he experienced some trauma or some type of stress that just caused him to snap, and that the rest that followed was him just living out a psychotic break. I can't really believe that, if someone really was trying to kill him in Canada in the first place, that they tracked him down across two countries and then finally murdered him. Rather, I think it could have been that Blair perhaps acted out to the wrong person, maybe a criminal that took advantage of him in this troubled state of mind, and then that unfortunately led to a violent struggle and the killing blow. It could also be that his death was just the result of a misunderstanding. If Blair was not in his right state of mind, and that he had pulled his own pants down and approached an individual, that person may have retaliated out of a will for self-defense, which does seem pretty reasonable for anyone if they are suddenly accosted by a half-naked man advancing towards them in the middle of a night in a parking lot. The actual murderer may not have ever intended to kill Blair in the first place, and if they had left the area afterwards, perhaps never knew that he had died from their confrontation. Really, with how strange the whole situation is, it's pretty easy to come up with at least a dozen different ways that could explain what led up to Blair's death, each just as likely or unlikely as the next. Unfortunately, with barely any physical evidence and the mystery of Blair's unexplained actions wrapped around the mystery of his death, it would seem that the story of Blair Adams will likely remain unsolved. It has been 21 years since his death, and authorities fear that if anyone did have any information they were keeping secret in the first place, it might have disappeared, if those people either died or perhaps was sent to jail for a separate crime. Agent Davenport has said with no evidence to lead up on, it would take someone coming forward with the truth if they wanted any hope of cracking this case. For me personally, this is one of those cases where the more you look into it, you only end up with more questions than possible answers. From what caused Blair to be set off and to exhibit his unusual behavior, to his random and desperate acts of trying to flee across two countries to escape an unknown threat, and to the bizarre circumstances of his murder, this is truly one of the strangest mysteries that I have learned about in a long time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. 
If you have any thoughts of your own or feedback on the mystery of Blair Adams or suggestions for future episodes, you can reach us at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Again, a reminder, if you would like to support the podcast, check out our page on patreon.com. And finally, we ask if you are listening to us on iTunes, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review, as it's great for us to hear your feedback, and it also helps promote the podcast so we can always reach new listeners. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care.